Hey, Life Canton. My name is Veronique, and I am church administrator here at Life Canton. We are so glad that you're joining us today, whether you are online or in person. Either way, I just wanted to remind you that God is up to so much in our church and in our community. And if you want to participate in what he's up to, one way that you can do so is by giving. You can do that by heading over to our lifecanton.org webpage. This week, we are in our Second Timothy series. You'll hear a message from Pastor Jared about how to deal with difficult people. Give that a listen, and I'll talk to you in a bit. Welcome to Life Canton. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am so glad that you are here, especially if you're newer here. This is your first time. We're glad that you're here checking things out as well. And I would say this, too. If you're like, oh, that guy, uh, I don't want to hear him speak. You can go to meet the pastor right now if you want to. You can just get up and leave. I won't take it personally this one time, I promise. Uh, So go and check out Meet the Pastor. You can hear a little bit more about what's happening here at Life Canton. You can always check this message out later online if you want to, but just want to extend that invitation to you if you would like. Uh, We are in a series called Second Timothy. We're looking at this very short letter that Paul writes to Timothy. Uh, Timothy's a young man. He's leading a church in the first century in an area near Ephesus. It's this very well-populated, highly intellectual uh, culture, and so that's where he's at, and it's a struggle. We're going to get into that in just a second, and I would encourage you to join me if you can. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Second Timothy chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, let us know. We have some newer ones as well as some used ones, and if, if you would like one, you would like to own one, let us know. We'll give that to you. Otherwise, we'll have the words on the screen in just a second. First, I have a question for you. How many of you have ever thought this, or maybe you have actually said this out loud? That this world would be so much easier if it weren't for all these people. Anybody ever felt that? Uh, I'm raising my hand with you, okay? I've felt that. That's weird for a pastor to say, right? Because we're in the people business. Church is all about people. But here's the thing. What do you and I know about people? We're messy. We're a mess. We're broken. We've got issues. It's difficult at times. How many of you have had to deal with difficult people? Don't raise your hands. We've all dealt with difficult people. There are difficult people. How do we deal with them well? This isn't just a 21st century issue. This is something that they're dealing with in the first century. Paul is writing to Timothy, who's dealing with people. How do you do that well? That's what we're going to look at today. So if you have a Bible, you can join me in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm going to be starting in verse 20. It'll also be on this screen if you want to follow along in that way. In a wealthy home, some utensils are made of gold and silver, and some are made of wood and clay. The expensive utensils are used for special occasions, and the cheap ones are for everyday use. If you keep yourself pure, you will be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean, and you will be ready for the master to use you for every good work. Hold on a second. I thought we were talking about difficult people. How do I deal with difficult people? Just tell me what's the step-by-step process. We're going to get there. Paul's going to get there. But first, wouldn't you know it, if we deal with difficult people, we first got to deal with the difficulty within us. We're difficult people, right? I'm a difficult person. I've got to check myself first before I start dealing with anybody else outside of myself. It was Jesus who said, before you remove the speck in your brother or sister's eye, you got to deal with the plank in your own eye first. So 
we're going to talk about what it means to be an honorable utensil. We're going to talk about what it means to deal with the difficulty within us first before we can even begin to talk about difficult people that we're dealing with. Now, Paul uses an interesting metaphor, and this is contextual for him. He talks about silverware, essentially, wood and clay, gold and silver, uh, utensils that you would eat with. And this, this is something that's important to know. In the first century, we've talked about this a little bit before, that meals and banquets are a big deal. It's not just like going through the drive-thru, getting a sandwich, and then going on your way. No, it's a very big deal. It's meaningful. It's important. There's lots of symbolism around it. Uh, and especially within this culture and in this context, it's all about honor and shame, honor and shame cultures. So they're specifically talking about an honorable meal setting. And so you would, you would have a meal, but all of the seating was arranged in a very specific way, a very symbolic way. The guests who was invited was meaningful, as well as the utensils that you would use all have meaning. Paul's just simply using this as a metaphor to talk to Timothy about how to be honorable how to be honorable so that you are, in a sense, a utensil for others. Can others utilize you well? Are you honorable? It specifically uses this phrase, if you keep yourself pure, later on, you will be clean. Your life will be clean. I want to talk about that for just a second because that could be a little bit confusing if you're newer to the faith. If you've been coming here for a little while, you maybe have heard us say things like, hey, uh, Jesus accepts you, you belong, you don't have to get your life all cleaned up. You don't have to have it all figured out in order to be part of the family of God. That is all still true. That's all still true. It's only by the death of Christ and the transformative work of the Holy Spirit that you can be made clean. You can't do it on your own. That is all still true. So what do we do with this phrase, keep yourself pure? Well, again, Paul is speaking to Timothy in his context. Timothy's already saved. Timothy has already experienced the grace and the mercy and the salvation that comes from knowing Christ, as well as he has received the Holy Spirit. He has gone through the receiving of the transformative work that the Holy Spirit is already doing in him and will continue to do. But there is this other thing that happens after that. And it's this churchy word, this biblical word that we use called sanctification. Sanctification. If you keep yourself pure, in other words, what you are doing, you are partnering with God and the work of the Spirit as you are becoming more and more sanctified by the work of God in you, in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. You, in a sense, listen to what God is showing you and revealing in you about yourself and begin to be part of that work. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy. Keep yourself pure and you'll be clean. You'll be honorable. So now we're going to move into what does it look like to be honorable? He's going to offer two ways that it looks like for us to be honorable in our lives in order to keep ourselves pure, to, to be clean so that we are utilized by others for every good work. Let's check out this next verse, verse 22. It says this, run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Instead, pursue righteous living or justice, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. It's a good start, 
This is a way to be honorable. Now he's speaking first and foremost how we do this inwardly. Eventually we're going to move to how we do that. Uh, how, how do we live honorably outwardly? First of all, he's talking about the inward life, the inner life, what's going on in our hearts, in our minds. He says, run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. He's primarily talking about the concept of sexual immorality here. Now, uh, sometimes, every once in a while, not every time, but sometimes when I'm preparing for a message, a sermon, I might look at uh, some other sermons that are out there uh, online by other pastors, if they've spoken on a specific passage, and see, you know, is there anything that they're saying to their congregations that might be helpful for me? Maybe I can pick up on some nuggets. And so I happen to find a handful of sermons that I listen to uh, just to, to, to grow a little bit more, to, to learn, to have some greater understanding. And every message that I listened to went through all of the passages that we're going to go through, but what all of them did, and I thought this was strange, all of them camped out on verse 22, but only the first sentence of verse 22. thought that was odd. All of them focused on this idea of running from anything that stimulates youthful lust. And then they proceeded to spend the rest of the message talking all about the ills of sexual immorality. And then they just began to uh, kind, of, kind of yell and lecture their congregations and more and more and more, it just built on more and more shame and guilt and, and feeling wrong and, and disgusting inside. And I found myself feeling all of these things as well. And it brought me back to when I was about 20, 21. Here's the thing. Timothy is probably around 21 years old as he's receiving this letter, as he's leading this congregation. I don't know about y'all, but when I was 20, 21, I didn't exactly have my head on straight, okay? I was not prepared to lead a church, certainly not like Timothy. And not only that, but I was surrounded by a highly sexualized culture, right? This isn't just a 21st century thing. This is a first century thing as well. This is a highly sexualized culture. And I was told, run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. I was rightly told those things. But what I also grew up into, and some of you had this experience as well, is something called purity culture, where the only focus was just this first sentence. Everything else was never talked about. It was only this. Always talking about sexual immorality and just further and further pushing us down into feelings of shame and fear and anxiety. Any kind of thought or feeling that we might have had associated with any kind of sexuality was immediately deemed evil, wrong, gross. It's, it, should be, it should be gone. It should go away. But the moment that you're married, all of a sudden, you have freedom and access to all of those things. And then you were just supposed to immediately change your mindset. No longer was it evil, wrong, gross, wicked. Now it was all good and beautiful and joyful. Well, if we know just a little bit about human psychology 101, it doesn't work that way. No, you actually take all of that disgust that you had with yourself, these images that were presented to me of Jesus is just standing there, shaking his head, looking at you. Oh, you had another thought. Oh, you had another feeling. That's wrong. That's bad. That's gross. That was presented to me growing up in my youth groups and in my college ministries. You take that into your relationship. It doesn't just go away. And so over and over and over are these feelings of shame. Now here's the thing. Here's why I tell you this. It's not that this verse 22 is any less important 
because of that. It's still important. Timothy is a young man with all kinds of exposure to a very highly sexualized culture. It's no different in the 21st century. It is important that he flee from those things, run from those things because of the danger that they may be. And what we're pretty sure about Timothy is that we don't know that he's married, that he's in a relationship at this point. He's a single man. He's got to run from these things. But, but if it only is this verse and nothing else comes after it, it's going to be shame. It's going to be shame inducing. If all we're ever doing as followers of Jesus is just running away from the things that we're not supposed to engage in and just constantly looking over our shoulder, afraid that these things are going to entangle me in sin, if that's all we're ever doing, then yeah, we're going to feel shame and anxiety. We're always running away from something. In fact, it's why most of, certainly the American world, finds Christian, uh, Christianity unappealing because we're mostly known for what we're against. We're mostly known for what we're running away from. We need this second part of the verse. This is where Paul says, instead, you're not just running away from things, but you're actually running toward something. You're chasing after something. Instead, pursue righteous living, justice, faithfulness, love, and peace. Don't just be running away from things and living in fear and anxiety and developing more and more insecurities about all of the things that are going wrong, but no, run toward the things that are good and wholesome and healthy. Run into things like righteous living, like justice. When you see things that have gone wrong, when you see injustice, get your hands dirty and be part of the justice work. Be part of the restorative work. When you see just uh, an aimless life. No, instead, live with faithfulness and discipline. Be devoted to this, Timothy. Pursue love, sacrificial love. Be a servant to your church. Lead them well through service and peace. There's going to be division everywhere you go. There's division in your church, but you are called to be a peacemaker. When we focus on these things, when we chase after these things, we become less concerned about what we're running away from, but focused on what we're running toward. This is the first way to be honorable for Paul as he speaks to Timothy. There is inward work that we have to do within our hearts and our minds, but also to enjoy the companionship of those who also call on the Lord with pure hearts, surround ourselves. We're not running away from things alone or running toward things alone. We surround ourselves with people who are like-minded. Now it turns outward. Let's look at the outward way to be honorable. Check out the next verse. Again, I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel but must be kind to everyone, be able to teach, and be patient with difficult people. Again, he's uh, talking about difficult people. And obviously, none of us have ever had to deal with any difficult person. But don't, let's just hypothetically say we had to. He's 21 at the time. 
Not only is like he leading a church, but he's also having to deal with difficult people. I think back to when I was 21, I was not at that place. I was absolutely not at that place. Now, that's not to say that if you are 21 or 20 or 19, that you are incapable. No, actually, quite the contrary. Here's the thing. I want you, if you are 19, 20, 21, I want you to see yourself in this, and I want you to see hope in this passage. The fact that this is actually possible, that you have every bit of capability to be a person of self-discipline, of maturity, one who can lead, one who can even engage in difficult conversations in a way that is honorable and healthy. So please hear me. If you are a student, a college student, you have access to the godliness that you need to be that kind of person. But here's the thing. For me, I, I, was, I was not at this place. And here's the thing that Paul says, again, I say. Why does he say that? Well, because just last week, we talked about this whole section where he says, don't deal with foolish or worthless arguments. Have nothing to do with them. Avoid them like they're cancer, like it's gangrene, like it's an infection. Avoid the arguments. But now we get a little bit more clarity. He builds upon that verse. He says, avoid the arguments, but you still need to be kind. You need to be able to teach and you need to be patient with difficult people. You know what I see here? I see avoid the arguments, but don't avoid the people. We can avoid the arguments, but we can't avoid the people. Well, how do you do that? How do you be an honorable utensil when dealing with difficult people? How is that even possible? Well, we first have to think about what's going on inwardly. And what we know, and what we talked about last week is this idea that what we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. And what we think about ourselves is a reflection of that, but also has an impact on what we think about other people and how we deal with other people. So if what I think about God is the most important thing about me, if I present ideas about God that are distorted, destructive, or depressing, then most likely I think that about myself and I'm going to take that into my conversations and relationships with others. It's going to be evidence of what I think about God. And ultimately, it's going to lead to them becoming more and more disconnected from God. What we think about God is the most important thing about us because it reflects the view of ourselves as well as our view of other people. Well, if we're going into conversations with difficult people, with disagreements, and we're already bringing our own baggage, our own fears and anxieties and insecurities, the conversation's not going to go well. We need to be kind. We need to be able to teach. We need to be patient. That conversation with a difficult person is not just about them. It's also about what's going on in us as well. So how do we do that? How do we engage in those conversations in a healthy and wholesome way? I want to give you an example. And I could share about a lot of examples that went well for me, but I thought it'd actually be helpful for you to hear a way that it didn't go well so that you don't copy me. Don't copy the way that I went about it. Uh, so there was this moment where I just entered into full-time ministry. I was in my early 20s. And... Um, 
and I was, I was still learning. I, I hadn't gone to seminary at that point. I hadn't even gone to any kind of Bible school. I, I had, most of my learning I had done all on my own. And I happened to come across a book that seemed to be interesting to me, and it presented a particular idea about God. It was a particular theology about God. And after I read that book, I kid you not, I was an expert. Uh, because, you know, what I know about myself when I'm 21, I just know everything. It's really convenient for me in my early 20s. So I read this book, and all of a sudden, I'm an expert. It's a joke, by the way. I just want to make sure I'm clear. Some of you are like, I don't, is this guy for real? No, that's a joke. So anyway, this is, this is how I thought about myself, this sort of cocky, narcissistic, uh, you know, God-fearing man that was bringing this into conversations that I had had with people. Well, there was an opportunity that was presented to me. There was a man who was about twice my age uh, who was struggling with a particular idea about God, uh, a certain theology. And he saw this in a group of Bible passages, and he wanted to discuss them with me. We had, I think, some disagreement on a particular passage. Well, now that I was this newfound expert on this new idea, and it happened to be connected to the thing that he was disagreeing with me on, I was like, great, this is going to be an opportunity for me to go and to prove him right. And so we set up a meeting, and he shares his concerns about a particular Bible verse or group of Bible verses and some ideas about God that he just wasn't sure about. He's like, you got to help me with this. I'm not sure. I think we don't agree on this. And so I'm taking all of these ideas that I got from this one book, mind you, and regurgitating it to him. I begin talking at him for the next 30 minutes in basically what turned out to be a lecture. And over time, I could see his demeanor just go down it down. And as I'm finished, he finally lifts his head just slowly and I see him wiping tears away from his eyes. And he says, Jared, I, man, this is, this is a lot. I'm not sure about all of what you had just said. I, I still have to process a lot of that. That's, man, that, those are giving me some ideas about God that I, I'm, not, I'm not so sure about. He struggled to find his words. He struggled to, to gather his emotions. And as he's in this vulnerable state, this is what I say to him. Yep, it's hard. It's hard, but uh, these are the facts. And so if you want to talk about it more again sometime, just let me know. But I got to run to another meeting. I want you to see how Paul would probably speak to me in that moment, but how he speaks to Timothy in the very next verse. Gently. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap. For they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Gently. Would you say that Christians are known for being gentle people? Especially when there's disagreement? Why gentle? Why is gentleness such a factor here? Think about these verses. They will escape from the devil's trap. They've been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. You know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like a person 
who is in an emotional or mental or spiritual prison. They are vulnerable. They're weak. You know what the last thing a weak and vulnerable person needs? Is a bull in the china shop being urgent, being combative, just shouting a bunch of facts and figures at them with 100% certainty of this is the way, and if you don't believe it, then get out. That's the last thing that, that a person like this needs, which is why Paul says, gently instruct. This is hard, especially when we're dealing with difficult people, difficult arguments, difficult conversations. And here's the thing that I wanted you to see. Perhaps God will change. Wait a second. I think that's a typo. Guys, I, I told you to change that. That's supposed to say Jared. So we just need to, we need to switch that up. It's perhaps Jared will change the, no. But that, that's how we think, right? It's my responsibility. I have to do this. Because if I don't change their heart, then God's going to be mad at me. Nope. It's not about you. Perhaps God will change their hearts. You have zero responsibility in changing anybody's heart. You might have a part in changing their mind, but it's God's responsibility to change their heart. And the Holy Spirit working within them, and especially if they're vulnerable. Your job is to be gentle, to be patient, to be kind with difficult people. This is what you and I are called to. The question we have to ask ourselves is how much are we actually letting God have control in the situation versus how much control we would prefer to have? And maybe another question to deal with is more of an internal one. How do we make, how much do we make dealing with difficult people actually about our own fears and insecurities? About what's going on in in us? This is why Paul says, keep yourself pure. How do we do that? How do we remain this pure, this clean utensil to be used by the master's every good work. I want to give you some action steps. And these are more internal work that we have to do with ourselves. I talked a little bit about how to deal with difficult people, but I actually want you to spend the rest of this week talking about how to deal with the difficulty within you. Dealing with you, yourself, as a difficult person. Three action steps. First one is to practice humility. Practice humility. Humility was just a nice, fancy way of saying, you might be wrong. You might be wrong. Here's the thing. In my early 20s, for me, I knew everything there was to know. I had it all figured out. I read a book and all of a sudden was an expert. Not true. (laughs) Not true. And in fact, I ruined, potentially ruined a relationship with a guy who's part of our church. It was 10 years later that I followed up with him in a conversation. Fortunately, he was still attending our church. 
this man that I spoke with. And throughout that 10 years, I realized so many more things. I, I, yeah, I read more books, but I also engaged in greater conversation with people who disagreed with me, with people who were wiser than me, with, with people who had more life experience with me, people that I could say, hey, I, I think this is what this is saying. Am I, am I off in that area? Do, can you challenge me a little bit more? Can you help me understand? And people would say, yeah, you're, you're sort of right here. You're, you're way off here. Uh, this is what you need to understand. I want you to think about this this way and then come back to me and let's talk. There, this took place over the course of 10 years. And I was humbled, which is also the root word for humiliated, realizing I'm wrong sometimes. And my 100% certainty isn't what it's all about. It's about restoring the relationship. And so 10 years later, I came to this man and I said, hey, you you remember that conversation we had 10 years ago where I just talked at you like I was some kind of expert? I'm so sorry. I was wrong in the way that I approached that. Unfortunately, he was so gracious to forgive me. Practice humility. Understand with an open hand, you might be wrong. It's not about you being more right than the other person. Be kind, be patient, be able to teach, be gentle. Second thing is to practice discernment. Practice discernment. It might be newer for some of you in the room, especially if you're newer to the faith. What is discernment? It's this ability to discern, to think through all of what's happening Engaging the environment, engaging what's being said, all of the content. We talk about these words uh, here on staff. We've been uh, processing through this idea about discernment to reject, reclaim, receive. Sometimes when you're in conversation, there are things that are said, things that are disagreed upon, that are completely contradictory to God's word. You may need to reject it, at least mentally, and then think about how to have that as a conversation. But also sometimes when you're dealing with difficult people, I have been in part of conversations where we've been talking about a disagreement, but now it becomes less about the disagreement and more about each other. And we start attacking each other's character and saying things about each other that, that God probably wouldn't approve of. God has things to say about me that are holy and wholesome, but sometimes people, other people don't always agree with that and say things about me to tear me down, or I say things about them to tear them down. We need to reject It's contradictory to what God says about us. That you are a beloved child of God. Sometimes we need to reclaim some things. What do I mean by that? Well, sometimes we're in conversations and people might be saying things that that is in a different language. Maybe they would use words that we wouldn't necessarily use, but there's a nugget of godliness, uh, a nugget of truth and value in that that maybe we need to hold on to and be like, okay, I, yeah, I can think about that. That's not normally how I would think about it, but I'm going, to, I'm going to process that a little bit more. Maybe I need to reclaim that idea in a way that I understand it through the lens of Scripture, through the lens of Christ. And then there's another one, receive. Practice discernment by receiving things that are said. Sometimes things are said in conversation that you need to receive that are good, that are absolutely wholesome, that are biblical, that are of Jesus. Sometimes there are things that you need to receive that are encouraging. And that 
maybe seems weird for some of you to hear, be like, yeah, of course. What, of course you would receive something that's encouraging. But what you might not realize is that most of us have a hard time receiving encouragement, receiving just a simple compliment. What I said earlier, sometimes we bring ourselves into difficult conversations with difficult people. We bring all of our fears, all of our insecurities, all of our anxiety, and we are so steeped in our own insecurity that the moment somebody says an encouraging word to us, we can't receive it. We can't even receive it because we're so buried in our own insecurities. And so somebody says, and I really like what you said the other day. You look really nice today. You know, I I really appreciate your creativity and the way that you think about certain things. Oh, no, no, I could never, no, I don't ever, no, that's not me. That's not healthy. That's not good. It's not godly. We practice discernment. When somebody says something kind and life-giving toward us, we need to learn how to receive it. Lastly, practice confession. Practice confession. This is simply acknowledging where we've gone wrong. Because we will go wrong. We will say wrong things. We will be wrong at times. And so we practice the discipline of confession. And sometimes we may even leave things undone things that we probably should have done but actually didn't do anything. We practice the discipline of confession. We acknowledge it. These three, humility, discernment, confession, and there are more that we could talk about, but I wanted to focus in on those three for now, are sort of, to me, a little bit like like taking care of your car. Like getting it washed from time to time, getting an oil change, changing the air filter, Getting gas in the tank. Why? Because the car is worthless? We need to overhaul it completely? No. It's because you recognize that a car has limits. No matter how new it is, no matter how nice it is, a car has limits. But you do these routine maintenance types of things to keep the car going, to keep it in good condition, to be utilized for its purposes. Guess what? Same is true of us. Humility, discernment, and confession is like routine maintenance for our souls. We do this regularly. We confess regularly to sustain our humility, to remember that I don't have it all figured out, that I don't have all the answers, that sometimes I might be wrong. And we invite the Holy Spirit to grow us the ability to hear God's voice through the power of the Holy Spirit to discern, God, what is of you and what's not of you? This is routine. Paul says, Timothy, this is how you be honorable so that you can be used for every good work. I want to focus in on confession for us today as this last action step. And sometimes uh, we take a moment to say, hey, we want to invite you to commit your life to Jesus, maybe for the very first time, or maybe you sort of need that recommitment, re-energize, that routine maintenance, if you will. And we ask you to have that time with God individually, and that's good, and there's 
moments for that. But today, I want us to do that collectively through a collective confession. Some of you maybe have grown up in churches where you've said these words. You're going to recognize them. Maybe you will even find yourself having them rehearsed and you're able to say them out loud. Go for it. For some, these might be brand new words. You've never heard them before. But especially for those of you who would say, you know what, I'm not part of the faith. I don't know if I necessarily believe in Jesus. Would you step out in faith today? Would you make this your confession? We confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. But for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us. Renew us. And lead us so that we can delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of of your holy name. Would you please stand with me? We're going to sing a song that basically takes this idea as we sing out a confession. And what I want you to see is the movement that happens in the passages of the song. That we move from this place of vulnerability and weakness and brokenness and confess that, but then we move into a praise and a hallelujah that God saves us, that God forgives us, that he creates in us again and again new things. Let's sing as we confess together. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that message. Something that really stood out to me and what Jared talked about was how we need to be gentle. He mentioned that several times. We need to uh, not be urgent or combative in how we talk with others, but we need to remember that those you argue with are in a spiritual, mental prison. He also said that it's not our responsibility to change hearts, but that's God's job. If anything stood out to you, feel free to share via our social media. Here at Life Canton, we believe that you belong to God, so you belong to us. If you have anything going on in your life related to the message or just in general, please reach out. We'd love to pray for you or get you connected. The best way to do that is to fill out a Connect card on our Now page. We hope you have a blessed week, and we'll talk to you real soon.